message is we exhort you. We exhort you. And as I came across that phrase in the concluding verses of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, frankly, it's the way Paul, the whole chapter is in essence a a wrap-up or a summary of the book of 1 Thessalonians. But as I came across that phrase, it made me perk up my ears, so to speak. And I looked at, well, what Now we exhort you, he says, brethren. And then he starts listing some things that he exhorts them to. And that's what's going to be the subject of our study. But as I looked at it, I thought, wow, this is a really comprehensive list. And so thinking, what does the word exhort mean? I had a sense of it, but I looked it up, and it means to encourage. That's one of the things I thought. It means to implore, entreat, urge, or request earnestly, though. And so it carries this flavor of begging. The underlying Greek word is often translated as beg. So we beg you. And now when you hear somebody say, we entreat you, maybe, or we exhort you, or we encourage you, maybe it doesn't carry the same flavor of importance or depth of importance as we beg you would. And so if it's the Apostle Paul, along with Timothy, and I believe one other who else is there, Sylvanus, well, maybe we'll come across that in some place. Uh, but those two, along with Paul, they're saying we're begging you to to do this. And so the request is being communicated passionately with this desperate desire that the recipients would respond favorably to the instructions given. So it has, if you're begging somebody to do something, now in the, from the world's perspective, it could be for your own personal gain but not from the perspective of the Apostle Paul communicating these requests or these exhortations to this group of fellow believers with a mindset towards benefiting them spiritually. And so when you're thinking about Paul exhorting a believer audience from a perspective of a loving friend or in Paul's case very often more of a paternal, a loving father speaking to others that he views as family members, and, and saying, I beg you, and then giving a list of instructions or things that he would exhort them to do. And Paul does that in other places. This isn't the only one. If you think about one of them, it's in Romans chapter 15, verse 30. And he says this, and in that instance, the New King James even uh, translates the exact same word. Instead of, we exhort you, it says, now I beg you, again addressed to brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ... And through the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in prayers to God for me. And you think about, there's Paul saying, I beg you to do this. And then he gives a specific encouragement. He also frequently advises fellow ministers to do the same. And you think about some of the pastoral epistles where Paul is talking to Timothy in two letters and to Titus in one letter. And he says that, same kind of a thing where he has that exhortation to them. And we'll see that here in 2 Timothy 4.2. He says, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. And now here comes a list of those specific exhortations. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. So he's saying, As I have pleaded with you or earnestly requested you, to do certain things. I'm saying now, in your preaching, pass along that sense of urgency to your audience and exhort them to follow after the same patterns and the same truth and the same doctrine that I've passed along to you. So it's not just Paul doing it to his audiences. He's teaching or training other preachers to communicate that truth with this sense of urging or this sense of earnestness or this sense of entreaty and begging them, knowing that those truths communicated directly from God or through the influence or the inspiration of God's Spirit working in the Apostle Paul, they would be for the audience's benefit. They would be for their eternal good. They would promote the spiritual well-being of those that were hearing what was said. And so Paul himself does it. He encourages other pastors in training like Titus and Timothy to do it. And he 
ends 1 Thessalonians with this series of exhortations. I beg you, and now he's going to give a series of things that he's earnestly requesting, urging, entreating, imploring, encouraging them to do, or begging them to do, again with the mindset that it would be in their best interest. You see, these lists or the series of exhortations, they're intended to benefit the fellow believers they're addressed to. They're communicated from a place of love and concern. Now, how many of them are we going to cover? There's 15 of them. There's more that we could cover if we went back a little bit further, but we're going to pick up in verse 14 because predating or, or preceding, I should say, the ones that we're going to look at, there's actually a couple more that you can find uh, starting with, and we urge you, brethren, back in verse 12. But now we exhort you, brethren, is where we're going to be picking up with our series of 15 exhortations that Paul has for these believers in Thessalonica. And so, Lord willing, we're going to look at the first seven tonight. It became clear to me throughout the week at camp as free time permitted, I was working on this sermon that we weren't going to be able to get through all 15. So let's just read this passage that we're going to cover over the course of the next two lessons, and then we'll break it down from there and look at, again, Lord willing, seven of them. If we don't get through seven of them, then maybe it'll be a three-part series. So First Thessalonians 5, pick up in verse 14. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good for yourselves and for all. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, test all things, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. And we're going to end with verse 25, our last exhortation we'll look at. Brethren, pray for us. So the last one is pray for us. And then you could finish out the rest of the book, which is three more verses. Might as well read them. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. That's also an exhortation. That's also an imperative. We're not going to cover it. It was a custom of those days. We're not going to start doing that here. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. That's not an imperative, but verse 26 was. 28, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. So on the heels of all of these exhortations, again, intended to benefit the audience, being requested or promoted or lifted up with a sense of urgency and begging that you would heed this advice, he ends with, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, which... The whole story of the Bible begins and ends with God's grace. What a fitting way for Paul to finish this letter. So a few preliminary observations before we jump into this list. First, these exhortations are all communicated in the imperative mood. So some will say that that represents the mood of command in the Bible. I you know, shy away from taking that flavor or giving that flavor to it because command almost has this sense of detachment from the person that's being commanded versus instruction is always given with that emphasis on the concern for the well-being of the one who's being instructed and so instead of commanding some distant faraway person that you don't have much of a connection to I think the more the paternal way of looking at it with a sense of I'm giving you this Advice. It's instructions that are intended to be heeded, but because they're critical to your spiritual success. So when we give it a flavor of one person in Scripture, a, a preacher or a teacher or an author of Scripture communicating through this mood, there's this underlying aspect of it's because it's for your benefit. So it's not just commands for the sake of being an authorita authoritative figure or being in authority. It's instruction given with the expectation that the instruction would be heeded, but all undergirded with this concept of, I have this desperate love and concern for your well-being, specifically your spiritual well-being. And so then when we look at it from that flavor, that 
the reason that these are communicated or yeah, communicated to believers with this parental type of a flavor to them is because that's the way God communicates his truth to us. Why? Because God is always for you. He's always on your side. He's never against you. And so if God is telling you anything, it's because he intends for his instruction to benefit you, to make your life better. And so when you focus on Bible, the Bible with a mindset of, I must do this, because I've been commanded to do this or because this is what makes me more spiritual than the next person and you take a self-righteous legalistic type of a approach and, and flavor the instruction with that you might get off track but if you look at it from a sense of the God of the universe is communicating these truths to me through human authors in many instances but with the express desire that what he has to tell me the direction he has for my life that it's intended to protect me, to preserve me, to grow me, to benefit me ultimately, to conform me into the image of his dear son. And so now all of a sudden it has a little bit different flavor. I bring that out. I brought it up before. That's nothing new to you if you've been coming out for any period of time here, at least while I'm teaching. I think it is important to understand that we have to have that lens as we see God's instruction to us, regardless of the mood that they're communicating. Now, these exhortations are directed to Paul's fellow believers in Thessalonica. But, by extension, they're communicated to every believer, including you, via the inclusion in the Word of God, because they're ultimately from God himself. They represent God's instruction to all believers. This is church-age truth presented to a local church, and you're part of a universal church of Christ, but also part of a local church or a gathering or assembly of other believers. And here's some instruction that is intended to benefit you and apply directly to your life. Though contextually we'll see there's some unique things that are present in this particular local church that might not be exactly what's present or what we're dealing with in this church or what you're dealing with individually in your life. Now let's dive in. We get to verse 14. Now we exhort you, brethren, we've talked already about what that means and what it's related to. We've talked about the fact that this is written to believers. But the first exhortation is this, warn those who are unruly. So our first instruction is warn those who are unruly. And that's an interesting instruction. You'd say, is that common? We'll get to that in a second. Yes, in some ways it is. But what does it mean to warn somebody? Well, to, the definition of this word is to admonish, to provide counsel, to instruct, or to bring to mind, to make somebody aware of something. And so it has, again, this aspect to it of wanting what is best for somebody. So when you're thinking about a believer relating or rightly relating to his fellow believer, we know from a multitude of scripture that God intends us to see one another through the lens of love. To have a love that was demonstrated by him become present in our lives as his spirit works to produce that same kind of thinking and living in our lives. And so that we would love one another the way that we were loved by God with this sacrificial kind of a love. A love that has a greater concern for the well-being of the other than we have for Ourselves, And so if a believer is modeling God's love, then when they come to even something like a warning, it's going to be motivated by a love for that other believer, not a desire to set them straight, not a desire to be bossy, not a desire to lord over somebody, not a desire to try to tear down or put, somebody, put somebody's failure right in front of them or rub their nose in it. That's not the idea at all. The idea is this idea of providing counsel to bring something to mind or make somebody aware of something that is harmful to them. That's the idea of a warning is that you're assisting them with information that is presently endangering them. So if you love someone, you should be willing to let the Lord use you to provide counsel. Remember, that was a part of our definition. Or make a fellow believer aware of something that is endangering him. Now, Back to that statement, if you love someone. That doesn't necessarily come automatically or naturally. 
all seek their own naturally. That has to be something that's produced by the Spirit of God being given free reign to work in your lives. And there's no new believers that I see here tonight. We all know this. This isn't, this isn't some kind of a news flash to us, but we have to be reminded of it. That when we're walking by means of His Spirit, the Spirit of God will produce in us the kinds of things and qualities, a manner of living that is, a reflection of God Himself. Godly qualities and manners of living. That we can be partakers of the divine nature in those moments where the Spirit of God is able to produce in us something that would be completely foreign to us by nature. So the fruit of the Spirit is love. It starts with love. The first thing is love. So you should love your fellow believers. I'm not going to go way deep into that. But you're never going to warn somebody if you don't care about them. So that's where the connection is there. So that's a general principle. We can take this idea of warn those that you love, of things that you see as a danger to them, as led and directed by the Spirit of God with the right motives. So there's our general principle. But now, specifically, there was an application here that is given. Not just warn them about something that you see as dangerous, but the particular danger held up here is those who are unruly. So being unruly was a danger to them that was undermining their spiritual well-being. As a byproduct of undermining their spiritual well-being, it was negatively affecting or influencing the local church too, though. That was an issue in Thessalonica. So this word unruly, what is, what is that particular danger? Well, there's two aspects to defining that word, and they're not really the same. They're, they're quite different. And most would hold that both of these things were problems in Thessalonica and could be problems in any local church. But let's look at the two aspects of being unruly. The one of them focuses on not being in battle order. We're not ready for battle. We're not arranged. We haven't, we haven't taken rank, so to speak, where we're all lined up and ready for the conflict. There are those that are distracted. There are those that are not standing shoulder to shoulder. There's gaps in the line because people are missing. So they're insubordinate, it talks about, or undisciplined. But it has a very military, 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 there's a word for that, has a flavor of a military way of thinking. That'll bug me. That's a kind of, no, militant, is that it? No. Okay, in any event, we're not going to get hung up on words I can't remember. We'll never have any messages here if that's the case because every, lots of times I'm up here and you think I'm like thinking of the next thing in my notes and I'm thinking of what was that word? That's a lot of uh, head trauma over time. Uh, and it, it, over time it kind of has its effect. But it has that military flavor. And it has to do with just being undisciplined. But I think the best definition as I read about this was we're not ready for battle. We're not lined up. We're not in order. We're not functioning. We're not like a well-oiled machine. Every part isn't ready to do its part. And so we're herky-jerky, kind of moving along the tracks possibly, but not the way that God intended. Not, not with the sense of efficiency or, or effectiveness that we could have if there weren't those that were insubordinate in those moments, just doing their own thing saying, I, I want to be a part of this, but I only want to be a part of this my way. And I ask you, Thessalonica had their particular things that people had their own ideas about, wanted to do their own way. They weren't the same exact things as what we might experience here as a local church, but is it possible that there's those that are a part of the ranks within our local church that at times would get so focused on doing things their own way that they would forget to line up shoulder to shoulder with the rest of the soldiers? Ever heard of that happening? You ever been the one doing that? Is, is that where your mindset is even right now? Where within this church, there's things you do differently, there's things that you wish were different, there's, there's you have another idea than the direction or the ideas that are laid out by even the leadership of the church. This is coming on the heels of of speaking about those who are laboring among you and are over you in the Lord. The ones that are admonishing you. 
They're to be esteemed highly in love for their work's sake. And so on the heels of that, he's talking about people who are insubordinate or just want to do it their way. Now, I'll tell you what. There isn't one person that was ever born as a human being under the curse of sin with a sin nature who doesn't at times fall into that description. I'm not immune from it in any way. When I'm walking in my own strength, when I'm doing things without letting the Spirit of God be the one directing, I do the exact same thing. So this isn't about shame or guilt or oh, you should feel bad. That What you're doing comes naturally if that's what you're thinking or how you're behaving. But the Bible is saying that that's a danger to you and others when we're not in rank, when we're not lined up and ready for conflict, when people are doing it their own way. We can't effectively serve the Lord through the model of the local church the way that he intended if that's how we're going to go about doing it. And so in any event... That is something that is still relevant today, though in our own unique ways. We have our own things that we get unruly about in terms of the not-in-battle order part of it. Now, the other part of the definition, though, focuses on idleness and laziness, which was another part of the issue that the Thessalonian church was dealing with. And so warning those who are idle and lazy. And so he addresses that in a few different passages in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, that there were people who just weren't doing their part. There were people who not only weren't doing their part, but they weren't even willing to do anything. Not, not just within the church, but in society as a whole. They weren't even willing to hold down jobs. Uh, people that were so focused on themselves, and in some cases, they were good-intentioned. In some cases, they thought that the return of the Lord was so near that there was no point in taking care of the business of life. And does life have business that needs to be attended to? Well, yeah. Is it something that should be more important than your walk of faith? No. But as you focus on the walk of faith, is part of your living within this world to deal with businesses, the, the business of life? Is somebody else going to do that for you? Should somebody else do that for you? And when it comes to the context of the local church, there's other passages that talk about every member of a body has a function, and every member needs to be prayerful about doing its part and that the body can't function the way God intended if there's those that have been gifted to meet certain needs of the congregation as a whole but they refuse to do it they refuse to let the Lord use them in that way so what happens the body is impacted the body is hurt by that the body is lacking something that could have been or should have been a part of the full function of the body now can the body survive without parts some of them, depending what they are, can survive. But does it function as effectively and efficiently as it would if it had all of its parts working correctly? I mean, this is just common sense, right? And so as you apply that to the local church, could you be the person who needs to be provided with some counsel or reminded or instructed about, don't be the person who's not in rank, the person who's not ready for the battle by lining up, up alongside of their fellow soldiers facing the same way in, in an orderly way or the person who's not allowing the Lord to work through them so that they could be a part of the ministry in the way God gifted them to be an effective part of the ministry and so those were some very specific things and both aspects that are being described they undermine the local church and so they were brought out in terms of something that needed to be addressed or could be addressed or should be addressed at times. And it's interesting when you think about even the concept of lining up for battle. Somebody, for that to be, for, for a military force to function, somebody has to lead. And the Bible, it's interesting, it never focuses on the qualifications really or the qualifications of the leader per se, although it talks about some some qualities that might be found in, in elders or deacons or something like that. But the focus isn't really on that. It's not focused on the entitlement of that person to be followed or those people to be followed. Um, it never focuses on that. It focuses on doing it for God's sake. To do it because it's ultimately God that we're following and that's leading. It's a matter of doing it for him not doing it for a human being 
not because they deserve it. Very often, if you analyze it from that perspective, you'd find that human leaders fall short. Very often, on a human level, they're hard to respect. They're hard to like even sometimes. But God says, don't do it for them. Do it for me. The things that you're doing, do it for me. Don't do it for them. And that's exactly, effectively, what he was getting at in those earlier verses that we read through in verses uh, 12 and 13. But he also says another reason to have that sort of respectful approach of arranging yourself in a way that's not undermining the ministry is, he says, do it for their work's sake because God is ultimately undertaking to work through them. So it all comes back to God. Do it for the sake of God's plan. Do it for the sake of their investment in you, even if it's not the way you might do that. So then in the general context, as you think about the idleness, um, well, let's take a look at it. Look at 2 Thessalonians 3.11. Because that was that second aspect of what was going on in Thessalonica. And it can be a real problem in any organization. But 2 Thessalonians 3.11, if you're there, it says, For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner. What's that talking about? The first part of our definition of what it means to be unruly. Now, what's the second part? Not working at all. That's the second aspect of this word. Not working at all. But what do they fill their time with instead of being useful servants for Jesus Christ? They fill their time by being busybodies. Has that ever helped any local church to have people have time instead of being servants of the Lord and being used by Him to fill their time with being busybodies, getting their nose into other people's business, becoming gossips that their favorite pastime when they come to church is to gossip instead of to be an encouragement to anybody or to minister to anybody? Now, don't feel threatened by those statements. All of us are susceptible to doing that. It comes easy. It comes naturally. There's nothing so exciting as some juicy bit of gossip. That's our flesh. That's what we gravitate to in our flesh. But God says that's not how it ought to be. It should be different than that. And so if you look at 1 Thessalonians 4.11, you come back to our letter in 1 Thessalonians, you see this idleness aspect of it again. And Paul says, this is my hope for you, that you would aspire to lead a quiet life. Now catch this. This is the busybody part of it. To mind your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. That was what was going on now. Let's bring it to our context of the local church. Is idleness and laziness and being a busybody, is that damaging to the local church? Yes. Is it damaging to you individually? Yes. That's why it says, warn the individual. How do you warn them? Well, bringing it to mind, instructing them, providing counsel. Sometimes that's not going to be you who's in a place to do that. You may not have the kind of a relationship with that person that you could do it in a way that they would receive it at all. Sometimes the best thing you could do is pray for them. Sometimes this might be a spiritual leadership issue. Sometimes this might be a good friend of yours that you have a long-lasting relationship with that they will take feedback or warning from you. And you can say, hey, that's not helping anyone. You need to learn to let that go. Yeah, I know you would have done it differently. But that's not going to help us move forward as a local church by disagreeing about the logistics of how something would be done. Let's keep our focus on the purpose behind what we're doing instead of how we're going about doing it. Do we all need to be reminded of that at times? Yeah, I, I think your head's in the sand if you think that never would apply to you. And when it comes to being lazy and idle, no matter what you're looking at in life, when you're talking about human nature, there's always those who are willing to work and what's the other half? Uh, maybe not half. What's the other option? Being willing to let them. Those that are willing to work and those who are willing to let them. And with any, within any organization that has people in it, and we have people in this organization, now, there are people that are a redeemed people, that have been brought into a right standing with the Holy God on the basis of their faith alone in Christ alone. They've been born again. They've been been empowered by God's Spirit. But God hasn't made them live life the way He intended. So you've got people 
that aren't forced to respond volitionally to the direction he wants for their lives. And so at times they default to their old way of doing things or the influence of their sin nature. And when they do that, the natural tendency is come, sit, go. The natural tendency is stand on the sidelines and watch while others undertake to deal with the daily needs that are necessary to keep a ministry going. Now, some people say to me, I don't have any way to be involved. And you know what? I'm not, I'm not criticizing when, when I, you when I tell you you probably haven't thought about it as much as you could have thought about it. Because if you had thought about it or meditated on it or prayed about it, there would be things that were jumping out to you, areas in, that you could be involved. Because God gave you certain talents. He gave you certain treasures. He gave you certain gifts. And he intended for them to be used, not to be hoarded or kept to yourself. Now, I can't say exactly what your gift or your talent might be, but sometimes I can observe it. But some of it doesn't require a lot of talent. When you talk about either being willing to be used of the Lord to be actively involved in the ministry or just be a bystander and watch other people do it. There's so many things. We could spend the rest of the night talking about the things that go into this church keeping the lights on and continuing to to function. And some of them are very uh, small and they're hard to think of and some of them are very obvious. Some of them are in the front, some of them are behind the scenes. In fact, I would say there's more of them behind the scenes than there are are in 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 the light, in the front. But there's all kinds of things. It's things like being a part of praying for the people that are here that nobody would ever know about. Some of them are about reaching out to some of the people that are part of the congregation and nobody but them would ever know that you did reach out to them. Some of them involve ministering to people in those specific ways. Some of them involve ministering to people through logistics, vacuuming, emptying garbages, weed whipping, lawn mowing, filling potholes that the gravel has, you know, wreaked, the uh, frost has wreaked havoc on our parking lot. Some of it is spraying weed killer in places where there shouldn't be weeds. Some of it is things like stocking the nursery or, or if you're in the office and you notice something is missing, picking it up on your next trip to town and dropping it off for everybody's benefit. Some of it is, some of it is things like being involved in camp ministries, Sunday school ministries, nursery ministries, and on and on you could go. You're really the wrong group of people for me to be even mentioning this too in some ways. Uh, But the reality is there's a lot of people that have some connection to the ministry here at this church. In fact, if everyone came at the same time that has has some connection or impact here, there wouldn't be enough seats to sit them all. That's how many people are involved in the bigger umbrella of this local church. But it's just something to be thoughtful of. Let's keep moving or we're going to get through one of these tonight. This will become a 15-part series. Who's, who's excited about that? <laughs> we got one. Thank you, Mom. She said you can always count on me. All right. You came through that time. Second one is comfort the faint-hearted. Through the second part of verse 14, part B. Comfort those who are discouraged is the idea. Now, in our humanity, discouragement comes naturally. So there's a place for this when you're talking about exhorting fellow believers about things that will benefit the local church because that's the flavor of these exhortations that Paul's giving. It's, it's to a church that's dysfunctional in some ways and he's saying, here's some, here's some things that would benefit you. This would benefit you and it would benefit others. So comfort the faint-hearted. You see that warn those who are unruly, not focused on the individual, focused on an, on an, an outlook. From interior, from inside of you, focused on others. Second one, comfort the faint-hearted. Not focused on you specifically. It's focused on how God wants to use you to minister to others. So many of these have that flavor. It's not about being exhorted to focus on yourself or minister to yourself. It's about being used of the Lord to minister to the needs of others. So, in our humanity, discouragement comes naturally. There are plenty of things that could potentially discourage you. Now, this isn't an all-encompassing list. It could be trials in your life. That's a big, broad word. Circumstances, big, broad word. Disappointment that is coming from seeing your, your own failure 
Disappointment in self, I guess you could put that. How about disappointment in others? Being disappointed, I shouldn't say in others, but by others. These all come naturally because in our humanity, we don't see things from an eternal perspective. In our humanity, we see people, we have expectations. We hope that they will do things a certain way, that they will live life a certain way. We set them on a pedestal to some extent. We have these dreams for our children, for our grandchildren, for our friends. Very often, people, though, being flawed, being inadequate, being broken, being sinful, in their flesh, anyway, or by nature, they fall short. And we fall short in terms of falling short of God's standard of what's right. We fall short when we try to live the Christian life through our own strength. There's many ways to fall short, but that falling short individually and in others, it leads to disappointment or discouragement. And so you think about that. There's lots of things that you could be discouraged by. Comfort the faint-hearted. So it's natural that there would be those around you that need some comfort. They need some encouragement from you. They want the Lord to work. God wants to work in you so that he could use you to encourage them. Now when you think about being disappointed or being faint-hearted. It's always the byproduct of a misfocus. I want that to be cleared if you, if you feel like you're faint-hearted or discouraged tonight. An eternal focus never is discouraged. It's impossible to see things from an eternal perspective the way God sees things and see all that he's done for you, how he is in control of everything, how he is able to undertake in every way for every trial and this and circumstance that you're facing you wouldn't be discouraged by that you'd be encouraged by that if that was your focus so it comes from a place of being focused on people focused on self focused on circumstances focused on trials instead of focused on him when we're focused on him there's nothing but encouragement that comes from that that's sort of a side point now why were the Thessalonians likely discouraged Well, in their specific case, it was probably because of persecution that they were facing and connected to that concern for Christians who had already died. Now, for the sake of time, we're not going to look at these two passages, but if you looked at 1 Thessalonians 2.14, make a note of that, it talks about some of the persecution that they're facing. And if you look at chapter 5, verse 13 and 14, I feel like that's not the right reference. It's not the right reference at all. It must have been, must be Second Thessalonians. I think that's the right reference. No, that's not right either. Well, in any event, it's a passage about they had a concern that those that had died would be left behind. And if I was better with references, that's where Paul says that the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. And he says, the dead in Christ will rise first. He says he wants them to be comforted by that because they had this concern that those that had died, that those would, might be left behind. Who knows the reference of that? 4.13. Okay, I was one chapter off on my reference. So, yeah, do not be ignorant about this. It was alarming to them. It was upsetting to them to think about, but what about those that didn't make it to the Lord's return? Because so many of the early church, they actually knew what it meant to live with a perspective that each day might be their last. The imminent return of Christ was on their minds to a, in a way that it's sort of been lost on us. Now I know though, there are those of you who are, are absolutely certain that the Lord's return will be imminent. But you should live like it's imminent whether you're convinced that that's true or not. He could return in any day. Okay, so the Bible says he can return at any time. It doesn't say exactly when that will be. You don't have to be convinced that it's tomorrow, but you have to be convinced it could be tomorrow. You don't have to, you, you then have to live or you're instructed to live like it, this day that you have today is your last, tomorrow is your last, the day after that is your last, with an expectation and a hope where you're yearning for that, you're looking forward to that, but, you know, there's been plenty, plenty of people whose whole lives have gone by with them convinced that the Lord would return in their lifetime, and it didn't turn out that way. And so that's not really the focus. The focus is, are you prepared? 
Are you excited about that? Is that what is influencing the way that you think? Are you living like today the Lord could return? But what was happening there is they all thought that the Lord would return in their life. And then some were dying off and he hadn't returned. So the concern was, what about them? If the Lord's coming to take those that are still alive. Anyway, that was causing them to be faint-hearted. That was one of the things that was causing them to be discouraged is what about those who have already died? But the other part of it was this focus on this persecution that they were facing, which in 2.14, it says, was just like the same kind of persecution that Christians were facing elsewhere in other places. It, Paul's saying, I know that you're facing that same kind of persecution for your faith. And he's saying, don't lose heart. But then he's telling them in this exhortation, comfort those that are losing heart. What does that tell you? That there are those who could lose heart as they look at that persecution that they're facing. So the question is, are you discouraged? Today, does that describe you? If you are, this instruction to you, of course, can be taken as don't be faint-hearted. But the instruction to those that are sitting around you is comfort those that are discouraged. So think about, who are those in my life that I know are discouraged? How does God want to use me to encourage them or provide comfort to them? Can you, the Lord use you to do that? Yes, absolutely. Otherwise, he wouldn't say comfort those that are faint-hearted. Now, what are you going to comfort them with, though? What are you going to comfort the faint-hearted with? If God says be an encouragement to those you know that are discouraged, how could you encourage somebody? Well, there's a lot of things that might encourage them, showing them that you care, showing that them that they're noticed, taking an interest in people is all connected to loving them. And so seeing your love or concern for them, that would be one potential way to encourage them. The other way to encourage them, of course, is to encourage them with the comfort that we have from God. And I love this passage in 2 Corinthians 1, 3-4 that says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how is he described here, though? The Father of mercies and the God of all comforts. Comfort. Now, what does he do? It's not just that he's characterized as being the God of all comfort. He comforts us in all our tribulation. With what objective in mind? that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So what is the kind of comfort that would be provided potentially by one believer to another that would be of any benefit? Not human wisdom kind of comfort. Comfort that you're provided as God ministers and speaks to you. How does he minister and speak to you? Primarily through his word. Being reminded and convinced to trust in the present, in the promises that he's made to you, in seeing his faithfulness. His character can be encouraging. His promises to you can be encouraging. His track record of faithfulness can be encouraging. His love being shown and reflected in you could be encouraging. That's how you go about comforting the faint-hearted. This isn't some sort of a request or exhortation to try to figure out some way to make people feel better through your own wisdom. It's about allowing God to speak through you and to shine through you into the lives of those around you so that those who are discouraged could be comforted. Our third part from verse 14 is uphold the weak. Uphold the weak. And the primary focus of this exhortation is to be helpful or provide assistance to others. So think about it. Uphold means to what? Hold up. So if you just break the word down, it means to hold up. Hold up the weak. Be, assistant, be of assistance to those who are weak. Now, the weak can refer to anyone who is presently struggling with something. It doesn't have to matter what it is that they're struggling with. Now, the specific context likely refers to spiritual immaturity and the associated failures. So the, the weak reference in the specific context is probably about a person who is not very strong in their faith, who's not presently trusting the Lord, who's experiencing the failure in their Christian life that comes from not keeping their eyes on Him and trusting Him enough. Now that makes them somebody who needs to be held up or lifted up. And who could do that? Who better to do that but the fellow ministers 
that are around them, that are their brothers in Christ, that should love them, that God wants to work through to provide assistance to them at a time when they're not doing very well. Kind of beautiful when you think about God's design there. And it could refer to any kind of struggle, though. So specifically, that was probably the application there, but any kind of struggle that someone is going to, God wants to use you to hold them up. Could be a spiritual struggle, physical struggle, relational struggle, financial struggle, an emotional struggle that you know somebody else is going through. God wants to use you to hold them up, to lift them up, to provide assistance to them. Now when you think about uphold the weak, could you be the weak at any particular point in time? Maybe tonight that describes you. You're somebody who's struggling with something. You could benefit from somebody coming alongside you as led and directed by the Spirit of God to provide assistance to you. Sometimes we think about that and we say, I don't ever want to admit that I'm weak. But the Bible says that when I'm weak, that's when I'm strong. When I'm weak, that's when I see that my sufficiency is going to have to come from God. My sufficiency is not going to be able to come from myself. It's in the moments of weakness that very often God can get a hold of our thinking in a way that's not possible otherwise. So you don't have to look at a word like this with disdain or be ashamed about it. But when you're going to provide assistance to somebody, again, what kind of assistance would be helpful? Well, sometimes it might be ministering to their physical need, but that's again wrought by an underlying attitude of love towards them. Sometimes it might be ministering to a financial need. Again, it's a demonstration, though, of your love for them. Very often in our society, it's a spiritual need where somebody's struggling in their faith. Sometimes, though, it's a relational need where they don't feel like they have anyone in their life that cares about them, where nobody's, quote, showing up in their life that is taking any interest in their life. People go through that all the time. Sometimes it's emotional need where they don't feel wanted, they don't feel important, they don't feel like anybody cares. Now, can God use us for the rest of our congregation? Yeah. Does he want to use us to uphold the weak, whatever the reason is that they're struggling? Yeah. And may God provide comfort to you in the form of another believer, yourself? Yeah. That's why a body works better than those who are trying to operate as a lone wolf. That's why God is calling for us to live life in this symbiotic way where we're ministered to and he uses us to minister to others. That's why the local church design is so beautiful and it's so perfect for what God had in mind. We're going to finish verse 14, come hell or high water here tonight. The last part of verse 14 here is be patient with all. Be patient with all. This is relatively short because... It's relatively straightforward. And as I, as I read that, I thought, hmm, that seems pretty dated. That doesn't seem very relevant to our time. That must just have been something that was happening in Thessalonica. People nowadays are patient all of the time with everyone. And of course, you know I'm joking. This is the one that spoke to me the most. <laughs> uh one of my, in my flesh, I'm, I tr- trend towards the impatient side of things. Now, that's true of everyone's flesh to some extent, but some worse than others, and thank you for not saying amen, Stacia. Be patient with all. That's not a new thing. That'll never be an obsolete thing. What a nice reminder to every one of us Paul is saying, God through me is begging you that you would allow this to be true of you. That you would be patient with all. And patience talks about this capacity to accept or tolerate things that normally would drive you nuts. That could be delay. That could be trouble. Anytime things aren't going the way you want them to. Sometimes it could be suffering that you're going through and being patient in suffering, keeping your eyes on the Lord despite the suffering that you're going through. But doing that in a way that you're not getting down, 
You're not getting discouraged or downtrodden. You're not becoming upset or thin-skinned or short-tempered, but to be patient instead. And I love that he said, be patient with all. Do you, have a, do you know that there's people in your life that for whatever reason, you can stomach an incredible amount of hassle, irritation, unbecoming behavior. Somehow you can just look through it. And you just, for whatever reason, you have a really high tolerance to that person. But somebody else that has irritated you maybe in the past or just for whatever reason, it's the look of them or I don't know what causes it, but you're extremely thin-skinned with them. And you're always irritated by them over the littlest of things. And you allow that to become a pattern in your life where once you've decided that you've labeled them as some sort of an adversary of you, that you're never patient with them. But this says be patient with everyone, not just the people you like or the people that it comes naturally with, but with all. And again, addressed to a local church, to fellow believers, to be patient with all. That's God's will for you, as communicated through the Apostle Paul. I beg you. Now, does everybody having a heaping dose of the Spirit of God's patience being demonstrated in their lives make the function of an organization better for everyone? Yeah. How many things that turn into conflicts would have been avoided with a little bit of patience? A little bit of forgiveness? A little bit of compassion? A little bit of tolerance? See, we wouldn't have many of the disputes and disagreements that end up leading to falling out, end up leading to church splits, None of that would happen if people were more patient with one another and if we didn't make exceptions about who we were going to be patient with. So, it's needed in a congregation. That's why Paul is saying this. Be patient with all. Again, not directed towards exhortations that you would internalize in, in terms of affecting or addressing the way you deal with yourself, but in terms of how you're going to be an impact or be a minister to others. That theme continued throughout all of these instructions that we saw, the whole four of them, here in verse 14. Now, are you willing to let the Lord have his spirit make you patient in your marriage? Is that the person that you're the shortest with? I got a newsflash for some of you who are married. Some of you are much older than me, so it would, you'd be willing to tell me this. Some of you maybe have told me this. Isn't it tragic that the people we're the shortest with are the people that care about us most? That's very often true. We can be so patient with somebody else. But when we come home and it's our own kids or it's our own spouse, we'll be sharp with them, sharp, sharp-tongued with them, quick to be impatient with them. And they're the human beings on the planet that care the most about us, second to God himself and then our, usually our parents. That's sort of tragic, but that happens. Are you willing to allow the Lord to make you more patient at your workplace? Are you willing to allow him to make you more patient in this church home, this family? He wants to. And it's very, very important to the underlying well-being of the entire congregation. Well, that's all we're going to get through tonight between the technological glitches and me as per normal going a little deeper into the weeds than I planned. So we're going to pick up with number five, in our next session, since there's 15, that's a nice even, even number to start. Not even number, but a nice place to start. Maybe I can go 5 through 10 next time, and then 11 through 15. So this might have become a three-part series. So for those of you who are hoping for that, God answers prayers. All right, let's end with a word of prayer tonight.